plunk. Something hit Laura's head and fell to the ground. She looked down and saw the largest grasshopper she had ever seen. Then huge brown grasshoppers were hitting the ground all around her, hitting her head and her face and her arms. They came thudding down like hail. The cloud was hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. Their bodies hid the sun and made darkness. Their thin, large wings gleamed and glittered. The rasping whirring of their wings filled the whole air, and they hit the ground in the house with the noise of a hailstorm. Laura tried to beat them away. Their claws clung to her skin and her dress. They looked at her with bulging eyes, turning their heads this way and that. Mary ran screaming into the house. Grasshoppers covered the ground. There was not one bare bit to step on. Laura had to step on grasshoppers and they smashed, squirming and slimy under her feet. Grasshoppers beat down from the sky and swarmed thick over the ground. Their long wings were folded and their strong legs took them hopping everywhere. The air whirred and the roof went on sounding like a roof in a hailstorm. Then Laura heard another sound. One big sound made of tiny nips and snips and gnawings. The grasshoppers were eating. You could hear the millions of jaws biting and chewing. Day after day, the grasshoppers kept on eating. They ate all the wheat and the oats. They ate every green thing, all the garden and all the prairie grass. The whole prairie was bare and brown. Millions of brown grasshoppers whirred low over it and not a green thing was in sight anywhere. Excerpts from On the Banks of Plum Creek from Laura Ingalls Wilder. That day was etched into the mind of young Laura forever, as well as the poverty, the hunger, and the hardship that came after it. It was also etched into the records of her life growing up on the prairie of America. It was something her grandchildren must hear. Verse 1 of Exodus chapter 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. Seven devastating plagues. Seven plagues have already smashed down upon the nations of Egypt and its king. The land lies in broken waste from a recent killer hailstorm. Yet a war rages in one man's heart. Like the iron bar in a blacksmith's blazing forge, the man is hardening it himself. The devastating plagues and confrontations are hardening that heart as well. And the Lord God is hardening that man's heart. Why does such a colossal catastrophe come down to such a very small battleground? Figuratively, about as big as my fist. The heart. Yahweh the Lord here gives three reasons. As we examine them, 
we can easily judge it is unfair. For if Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart, then what chance does the mere mortal man have? That is a common question. And it is a question that Paul anticipates when he wrote about the sovereignty of God. And he wrote in Romans chapter 9. Please turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he called not of the Jews only but also of the Gentiles. If Paul could not make God's sovereign eternal plan more palatable to the human psyche than this, neither can I. My responsibility is not to make the will and actions of Yahweh somehow conform to what we, his creatures, see as fair. Rather, I am tasked to explain from his word who he is and what he has done. I have read many explanations of Yahweh's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But I offer to you what I believe is the best and most reliable. That which the Lord has given in his word. Paul's writings in Romans 9. And Yahweh's statements in Exodus chapter 10. This is why Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And brought devastating plagues on him and his people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we enter into chapter 10 of your book, Exodus, that you will open our minds and hearts to you. May we not be afraid to see you for who you are. May we at the same time fear you for who you are. May we trust you and walk with you as our Father and yet honor you and glorify you and walk in obedience to you. Show us this morning from your word, Lord. Please overcome my inadequacies. And may your spirit speak. Thank you for what you've written here. In your name, amen. Yahweh gives three reasons. English translators introduce each reason in these next two verses with the word that. We begin in verse one. 
that I may show these signs of mine before him. Before who? Before Pharaoh. That I may show these signs of mine before him. The first reason, the signs that must be shown. Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart in order to demonstrate, and, and follow me here, his complete ten set plague. Each individual plague was miraculous in timing, extent, in its devastation and its distinction. For instance, water everywhere turned to blood. Millions of frogs, boils and sores, hailstorms, lice and disease. But when the ten plague series is completed, we will see that each was part of a greater single purpose of God. In other words, the plagues, plural, is a singular package deal. God explains it in Exodus 9, verse 14. He said, For this time I will send all my plagues on you, all of them, and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God says, I could have removed all of you from the face of the planet with one quick stroke of my hand. But verse 16, he goes on to say, But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Second reason, the story that must be told. Verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, my signs which I have done among them. Mighty things I have done. Literally that translates into to deal harshly or to make sport of. If you have the New American Standard, it reads to make a mockery of the Egyptians with these plagues. By his omnipotence, Yahweh was simply toying with the mighty Pharaoh. Pharaoh is reminiscent to me of the mouse caught by the cat. And if you have a cat and you've seen the mouse, you know what I'm talking about. It catches the mouse and that mouse flees back and forth from one paw to the other as the cat bats it forth. Always under the scrutiny of the unrelenting eye of its captor until the cat decides it's over. These plagues and this deliverance of God's people are never to be forgotten. They are to be passed down from father to son to grandson. This event is to be the great memorial statue in the history of God's people. Remember this and pass it on, says God. Do not let it be forgotten. You will find in Psalm 78, 36 through 51, you will find in Psalm 105, 26 through 36, you will find in Psalm 135, verses 8 through 9, the plagues brought up and brought to the people again as a memorial, a remembrance. So what do we see in this verse? Men, parents, grandparents, your assignment is to tell this story to your children and to your grandchildren. Do it. That is one of the reasons it was brought there, so that they would tell it. To their sons and their grandsons. The third reason. Yahweh hardened the heart. The truth that must be known. Second part of verse 2. That. 
you may know that I am the Lord. Over and over again, Yahweh declares his purpose. Moses, Aaron, the Hebrew people, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians, they must know Yahweh as ruler over all of creation. At least seven times, the Lord declares the priority of this purpose in Exodus. Exodus 6, verse 7. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Exodus 7, 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 7, 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 8, 22. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may... Know that I am the Lord. And then it's yet to come. We haven't got there yet. Exodus 14. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army. That the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14, 18. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And lastly, Exodus 29, 46. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Do you see a pattern there. This is what God wants. He wants the world to know who He is. And it is the third reason for the hardening of the heart. You see, the reputation of Yahweh is of highest importance to Himself. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind whenever He presents you with the opportunity to speak of Him. Declare boldly. Declare, declare passionately. Declare gratefully the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make him known whenever you can. That is the assignment. Verse 3 says, Moses and Aaron then came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. And we have the unanswered question from Yahweh. How long? Yahweh's grace is on display here. There is clearly opportunity, even exhortation for Pharaoh to accept Yahweh's dominion and humble himself. And the way to do so is clearly laid out to Pharaoh by Yahweh. Let the people go worship me. But it is also a rhetorical question. For Yahweh knows the answer to when Pharaoh will finally submit and let the people go worship him. He knows. But at this point, Pharaoh is both unable and unwilling. He will not. Several centuries later, Peter spells Pharaoh's, spells Pharaoh's stumbling block out to the first century Christians. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Is this not often the stumbling block even to our obedience today? Are we willing to humble ourselves before God? Are we willing to humble ourselves before the church, before each other, before our children, before our spouse? Will we humble ourselves? And in the next verse, grace is offered again as Yahweh issues what you could call a wake-up call, a wake-up warning. In verse 4, he begins, or else. Now, you do not want God to say to you, or else. 
Or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. And they shall cover the face of the earth. So that no one will be able to see the earth. You, you literally see what he's saying there. That word cover means to conceal or to clothe. Like putting a dark squirming blanket over the entire earth. Suddenly that is all you will see. And they shall eat the residue of what is left. Which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. And they shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's father have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. I see the Egyptians, even before this, had a deep fear of locusts. Prayers and offerings to the gods of the land were offered for safety for the crops and protection from the devastation that Moses had just warned about. But every effort and prayer to their little gods would be futile. Now as we read this it sounds like there had been crop damage and loss before from insect hordes. But nothing like what was about to be unleashed had ever been witnessed on earth prior to this day. Yahweh's warning assures us too that neither would such devastation ever happen again. This would literally be the worst of the worst for all time. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, you see, they are hearing, they are experiencing, they are going through this devastation. And they said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Another unanswered question from Pharaoh. For Pharaoh. This time from the servants. How long? I remember several years ago there was a devastating tornado in Joplin and I, over a hundred people were killed in, in a matter of hours it swept through in the night and, and we had the, the real blessing and privilege to go down and help Phil's uncle try to repair and do some things there and we got down there and I remember we stood in the midst of that area, the damaged area and you looked across and you didn't see a single tree and maybe a crag of a tree a few feet off the ground. And everything was just completely devastated. And, and there was no greenery, there was no life there. And it just seemed so desolate and devastating. We see video footage now from the Middle East. And it shows large swaths of cities turned into rubble. A brother and I recently talked about the scenes of destruction and reminded us of Jesus' prophetic words of the leveling of Jerusalem when Jesus said, not one stone shall be left upon another. Yet, in the midst of this reality that we see, sometimes we hear what seems to be a Pharaoh-esque claim of imminent victory and everything being under control. Again, it's like the mouse captured and being toyed with by the cat looking up and squeaking, ha, I've got you right where I want you. Why would the mouse or Pharaoh hold tightly to such denial? Is it to save face? 
to not lose control of the people or not lose control of the, of the situation or to put off the inevitable as long as possible. Perhaps all of these reasons combined to harden Pharaoh's heart, to harden it to rebel against Yahweh, who it is obvious by this time controls Pharaoh's universe. Pharaoh has no chance. Even his servants see it. They were honest and self-preserving enough to beg him to relent. And if you look at their plea, if you break it down, you see they know this game is over. Four phrases, two appeals, sandwiched by two questions. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Not just you, Pharaoh, but to us. The appeal, let the men go. Let them worship Yahweh. And the last question, can't you see? Can't you see that it's all over? Well, evidently, the servant's appeal struck a chord on the heart of Pharaoh. There is a result here. Verse 8 says, So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Pharaoh again wants to negotiate. And I read this and I think, Pharaoh, you were so close. You were so close. But you just couldn't let go, could you? In verse 9, Moses with uncompromising clarity said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and our herds we will go. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. It's as if they're saying, we leave nothing behind. Neither we nor our possessions belong to you, even if you consider yourself to be king. This is not a negotiation. We obey Yahweh. He is our king. And you will obey him too. Then Pharaoh said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for, what is that, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. At this point, Pharaoh's anger just breaks completely through. Uh, the NASB words it this way. I thought it was a little more clear. Then Pharaoh said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. The LSB says, evil is on your face. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord. For that is what you desire. And so they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. You see, after plagues 8 and 9, Pharaoh is obviously enraged. And why? Why? Because everything is slipping through his hands. The nation is devastated. Egypt is clearly under the control of this foreign god, Yahweh, whom they cannot overcome. Pharaoh cannot even negotiate a compromise. Centuries of Egyptian power and pride have been crushed into worthless rubble. There is nothing Pharaoh can do except obey this man, this despicable Hebrew shepherd from the desert. A true nobody now rules his kingdom. And for the first time, Moses and Aaron are thrown out of the Pharaoh's presence. Verse 12 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, for the locusts 
that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously they had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there ever be such after them. For they covered, they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. And you read that and the extreme, extreme words are there everywhere. All, everything, nothing. The destruction is exactly as Moses had warned. This is unmistakably no natural disaster. It comes exactly when, where, and how it was promised. It comes exactly when warned. The next day as Moses lift up his rod. This time the plague, it does not come out of the dust like the lice did. And it was not Moses' rod that brought the horde of, of devouring insects. But the Lord creates wind that carries in this mass of hungry locusts. And it comes in precision where? In precision where warned, on every inch of Egyptian soil, in every dwelling, upon every Egyptian person. But, not a single bug lights on a Hebrew or their land. And it comes in the massive severity, which was as warned. All that remained after the hailstorm was utterly devoured. Did you know, a single locust can consume its own weight every day. A full-scale swarm may cover several hundred square miles. An infestation can contain between 100 million and 200 million locusts per square mile. Locust plagues in Africa during the 1920s and 30s destroyed 5 million square miles. That's almost twice the size of the continental 48 United States. A 1988 edition of the Chicago Tribune reported, billions of locusts are moving across North Africa, blotting out the sun and settling on the land like a black ravenous carpet to strip it clean of vegetation. The density of the infestation reached 10,000 locusts per 10 square feet. As bad as those facts sound, in all the history of the world, there had never been a locust devastation like the one in Egypt. And never would there be one to match it. As you can see, there's literally no, nothing left in Egypt except the lives of the people who still remain. The economy is destroyed. The agricultural system has been crushed and devoured. The pride and confidence of the people have evaporated. But of greater significance, the plethora of Egyptian gods has been humiliated and unmasked. It has been shown to be powerless. Philip Ryken states, The Egyptians worshipped men, the patron of the crops. Men worshippers held an annual harvest festival, which may well have coincided with this eighth plague of locusts. 
The Egyptians also worshipped Nephri, the god of grain, and Anubis, the guardian of the fields, and Senehem, the divine protector against pests. End quote. All of these have been summarily defeated. They are worthless. And at this point, even Pharaoh begins to panic. Verse 16 says, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, hurriedly, quickly. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. It's a broken Pharaoh. He's broken emotionally, but he's not broken spiritually. He admits he has sinned, both against Yahweh and Moses, but his wrongdoing is minimized. Forgive my sin only this once. And his desperation to escape sin's consequences magnified. Plead with Yahweh your God only to remove this death from me. Please save me. One thing is for sure. Pharaoh is learning who Yahweh is. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. And there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. This is amazing. What sovereign control Yahweh demonstrates. Not a single locust remained in Egypt. Not one. And then they were all blown by the Lord's west wind. Where? Into the Red Sea. The same sea which not only swallowed up every single locust but would soon consume every single soldier of Pharaoh's army. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children go. We come to verse 21. The darkness that paralyzes. A night without warning. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. You see, it is not unusual for God to utilize darkness. We have seen that many times even in the Gospels. And we see in Psalm 97 verse 2, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. In all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and then in Luke, chapter 23, 44, now it was about the sixth hour when Christ was on the cross and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, three hours. But the darkness Yahweh brings on Egypt is more than simply an absence of light. It is somehow palpable. Uh, it is so dark you can feel it. The closest experience I've known of anything like this was deep in the bowels of the Hutchison salt mines. You're 650 feet below the city. That's over two football fields of depth. And at one point in the tour, as we're observing some of the artifacts stored down there, the guide turns out the lights. You could see absolutely nothing. You could put your hand here and you would not know. You had, you, you had no knowledge of anyone around you. You could almost feel that darkness. When verse 23 tells us that they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, 
I know why. In such darkness, you cannot take a step with any certainty. Even your sense of balance and well-being are thrown off. And this lasted three days. Three days in Egypt. Under those conditions, what happens to time? Time becomes completely obscured. After all, what would mark a day? There would be no sunrise, no sunset, no moon, no stars. What a terror this would bring. What a terror this would bring. A terror everywhere except that is. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. That's amazing. Psalm 18 verse 28 says, For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. An even greater desperation now. Pharaoh again attempts to negotiate. This time the absolute supreme Egyptian deities have been scorned by Yahweh. Riken again notes, the Egyptians served Horus, the god of the sunrise, Aten, the god of the round midday sun, and Atum, the god of the sunset. But the supreme deity in their national pantheon was Amon-Re, who said, supposedly, I am the great God who came into being of, my, of himself. He who created his names. He who has no opponent among the gods. For Egyptians it was a matter of faith that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed. End quote. That is supremacy. That is sovereignty. But it goes even deeper. And listen to this part, please. Stephen Quirk explains, At the kernel of the civilization stands a special relation between the divine father figure of the sun god, ruler of creation, and his solitary offspring on earth. Who might that be? The reigning king of Egypt. In other words, Pharaoh is seen as the human son and representative of the greatest of all Egyptian gods, the sun god Re. Yet without warning, without warning, Yahweh immerses Egypt in three days of total darkness that you could feel. Never once during those 72 hours does he allow the sun to appear. Simultaneously, he provides light to his own people. This has been an overwhelming demonstration of total dominion over any and all of the so-called Egyptian gods, especially Pharaoh. Pharaoh knows exactly who he needs to go to. One more, once more, one more time, he tries to bargain for some little crumb of advantage. Verse 24, then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But now, Moses is even more unyielding than before. Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Not even a hoof. So Pharaoh's fate is sealed. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's the third time we read the Lord's hardening his heart. And Pharaoh would not let them go. Instead he issues this empty threat. 
Verse 28, Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself, or you better watch out. And see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And he's answered by an ominous and prophetic fact from Moses. Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. I encourage you to just meditate on that chapter and ask God to show you what he would. A few things would be in the midst of stubborn opposition of men and extremely difficult circumstances of life. God is working. I'm going to give you three things he's working to do. One, he is working to show his sovereign power over man and our idols. Idols, yes, idols. You probably don't have any cards carved statuettes uh, in the middle of the table at home or above the hearth that you bow down to. But we have idols. Anything that takes priority over the Lord God, anything that comes between us and allegiance and obedience to God has become more important. It has become a priority. It has become our idol. I think it was Calvin who says the heart is an idol factory. I want you to think back with me, please do this. Think back on how a specific, a specific difficult trial ended up drawing you closer to Christ and leading you in ways you would not have gone otherwise. Think back. Think back specifically to a trial that you've had where God worked and drew you closer to Him. And know that there is no man or situation that can thwart Christ's sovereign will in our lives. No Pharaoh, no boss, no spouse, no co-worker, no person, no matter how powerful, no situation, no matter how inescapable it may seem, can thwart the power of our sovereign God. He said in Isaiah chapter 46, Remember the former things long past, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times. Things which have not have been done. Saying my counsel will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He doesn't say I'll do most of it. Majority. 90%. He will do everything. According to his will. To his good pleasure. And then after thinking about a situation and about who this God is, ask yourself, how shall I respond to future trials? How am I going to respond to future trials? Will I think back? Will I remember? Why did God say, tell this to your sons and your grandsons? For us and for our children. So that when these come, we will reflect on who he was and how he had demonstrated his power. What a great God we serve. I also think it is to show that he is Yahweh, the sovereign everlasting I am. Again, as you look back on situations from the past, what attributes did God demonstrate? His control over time, his eternality, his general sovereignty, his mercy, 
his grace, his long-suffering, his justice, his wrath. In what ways did Yahweh, the I Am, show himself to you? What do you know from that? And then lastly, I believe it is for us to use, that he would use us as witnesses to the generation in which we live. We are his spokesmen. We are his ambassadors. As go, God were pleading through us, Scripture tells us. Isaiah 43, 21, The people whom I formed for myself will recount my praise. Is that happening? Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. John 15, 26, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, But you are a chosen family. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Declare the praises of Him. You see, you were once not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had once not obtained mercy. But now you have obtained mercy. We are the people of God because of the blood of Christ. Acts 4, 19 through 20 to close. But Peter and John answered and said to them, those who had threatened them, beat them, they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I would love to have that be my theme, my life. I cannot stop speaking about the things we have seen and heard. If all of us took that on, what a tremendous sound would go throughout this city that we could not stop telling what Jesus has done. I just want to add one thing, and it's, it, I don't think it's a rabbit trail, but uh, one of the circumstances that happens oftentimes when we're sharing Christ is somebody shares with us they're very active at a so-and-so church and, and uh, believes that they're a Christian, and, and we begin to ask them a few questions, and it turns out that they have no idea of what their standing is before God. They're hoping for the best because they're trying to live a good life. And I, I just am impressed. I don't want anyone to leave this church on any Sunday and not know it's not about how good you live. You must repent and follow Christ. He is sufficient. He is full of grace and mercy to forgive your sins. When he said it was complete on the cross, it is finished. He had accomplished all that was necessary to give you eternal life if you will but turn from sin and trust in Him. You could come here every Wednesday, every Sunday. You could start your own thing two or three days a week and be in this building and you would not know heaven unless you had repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about that, don't be embarrassed. Don't let the enemy push you away. Don't say, I'll wait till tomorrow. Come and find out how you can know your Savior, your Creator, and have eternal life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What a dramatic story, confrontation you have presented to us, Father. You had done, as we look and we see how Moses has been transformed from a, a really a defeated, discouraged man back on the backside of the mountain to he is walking with you in boldness and confidence. Father, I pray that you would do that to us. I'm a sheepish guy. I, I need you. My brothers and sisters are. Father, transform us so that you will be magnified and glorified. Thank you for your word. Please keep teaching us and lead us nearer to you. Use us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.